Welcome to Raza Chats, a bi-weekly podcast about conversational AI where we talk about open source, applied research, and how our community of makers is building accessible AI. I'm Maddie Mantha from Raza, and I'm your host. And today we're talking to Hamel Hussein from GitHub about making machine learning work in production. All right, Hamel, thanks for joining us and for taking the time to talk to us. Welcome to Raza Chats. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I want to kick things off and introduce the topic for today's episode, machine learning ops. Obviously, it's a huge field. Um, so in, in your opinion, you know, how would you define it? And what are the different steps you go through when you're pipelining and releasing machine learning applications into the real world? Yeah, I mean, I would describe uh, machine learning ops as analogous to a DevOps. That, um, so DevOps is a kind of a discipline paired with uh, traditional software engineering that helps with uh, kind of the software engineering life cycle of testing, deploying uh, software, monitoring that, uh, make, making sure it's reliable and performant and that uh, people can, that there's a low friction to iterating on these things. And um, that tooling has matured over a kind of a long period of time. And I would say the field of DevOps um, is really, the mainstream of DevOps is really focused on a lot of times things like web apps, like how to deploy, deploy a website or an application, perhaps uh, backed by microservices and things like that. Um, but it turns out that machine learning systems require something very similar, but the requirements are, can often be very different because you know, obviously machine learning systems are very different than web apps. And mm-hmm. even their, uh, their underlying microservices might be very different in terms of their compute and the workflow that goes into that. So uh, MLOps really tries to take the concept of DevOps and create something analogous uh, to, to that for machine learning so that machine learning people can also iterate faster, have tools to deploy machine learning into production, monitor that, do it with the kind of lower friction and things like that. And there is a fair amount of overlap between traditional DevOps and MLOps such that you know, not to reinvent the wheel where it's not necessary and also to try to use existing technology where it makes sense. But there are some new things that maybe don't exist today or that are newer. And I think, uh, people are still defining like what ML ops really means. As far as the pipeline is concerned, I don't wanna, I don't know if I wanna get into defining a machine learning pipeline. I guess that's kind of um, you know, maybe a boring topic or something that's very mundane in the terms of, you know, people, I don't wanna describe like what a typical machine learning pipeline is, because it's very different for a lot of people, but it generally is, you know, consists of something like acquiring data, cleaning it, iterating on some type of model, and then productionizing that model, and and then going through several iterative loops of that um, to really sim- oversimplify it. But that's generally how I think about it. Okay, cool. Um, 
like, what do you think are the trickiest parts to get right when you're um, like pipelining a machine learning application? Something that's might be different for a regular software application, do you think? I think a lot of it, a lot of it can be tricky along the way. I, I, you know, and it depends upon the organization uh, and the circumstance. I've seen people struggle with all various different steps in the journey of trying to produce a data product. The part where I actually see it fail the most often or where struggles happen uh, that are of the greatest consequence is actually at the very beginning in the formulation stage. People mm -hmm. scoping what uh, this data product should look like, what goal does it serve? Is it really going to sort of move the needle on anything that the company really cares about or is it more of a vanity project um, to allow someone to say that they use machine learning in, in X. And being really getting that, uh, defining that very crisply and doing that really well is actually very hard. And I think that's where a lot of projects fail in my experience um, because they don't define that crisply enough or they're not honest with themselves to uh, say, this is something the company cares about. And eventually the project doesn't have enough funding to be successful. Because at the end of the day, a lot of times machine learning can be very expensive. It takes an enormous amount of time and resources to uh, pull off a data product often. And um, you need certain amount of buy-in um, to beyond just words to be able to accomplish that. Um, and if the product you're building doesn't actually further a goal of the company, even though people may express excitement at the onset of a project that withers away quite fast if it's not moving a metric that people can be reminded of uh, when it comes time to you know, build infrastructure for that uh, data product, uh, staff up that data product beyond the single data scientist mm -hmm. um, that might be there in the initial stage and so on and so forth. So th that's where I see the main struggle. Um, in my experience. When you're talking about um, trying to frame or scope the project, right? Something that aligns with the company or like the, you know, one of the, one of the bigger goals of the company. Let's say you're a retail company, right? Would it make sense if one of your goals is, well, we want to decrease cardabenamin, right? Um, and then so you try to build maybe a chatbot or something like that that can answer questions and sort of talk to customers uh, about certain products that are in their cart and try to help them, you know, make make an informed or better decision. So that would that maybe be how you envision companies coming up with ways to inject machine learning into into what they're doing? Yeah, that's a really good example. And I think, um, you know, being able to describe that justification to business leadership in a crisp way and um, inform folks of what are the what is what is the opportunities uh, of this data product and what you might miss if you don't if you don't do anything um, what opportunities you know might be left on the table and really summing it up in terms of things that they care about mm -hmm. um, and really trying to find out like what is the bottom 
what are, what are the metrics they care about? A lot of times the organizations have slews of different metrics or even metrics you can make up, but you really have to find out what is the, what are the metrics that this organization cares about? So, I mean, in your example, it might be that they, you know, there is some outstanding dashboard or report that they do measure abandonment rate, but you might have to also express that in terms of revenue uh, and do an analysis and, paint a picture of, you know, how you might be able to move your quarterly numbers in, in one direction or the other with these type of things. Um, and I think that's where people struggle. And frankly, that's where it gets lost. And that has nothing to do with ML ops. That's, that is where I see a lot of challenges. Um, I think it's when you start to get into the actual implementation of these things and that's where ML ops can be helpful. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned, you know, some of the biggest challenges that you see are at the beginning of the project in the scoping phase. What are, um, I'm curious to hear, like some challenges that you see, you know, in, in production? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, so a lot of times models never make it to production because the process is so expensive and so um, onerous that never like never make it beyond the prototype stage because folks underestimate the expense of putting something in production or may not have tools or infrastructure uh, in place um, to do that in a low cost manner. A lot of times, you know, there's an upfront cost of building this infrastructure, having a platform where you can, you know, deploy these models, but a lot of companies are reluctant to kind of do that. They kind of just jump right into, okay, let's just, you know, deploy a model. And that first use case or that second use case can be quite expensive from an upstart perspective. So I think um, that's where people struggle. Um, you know, folks struggle also with really the whole DevOps aspect of how to monitor, how to deploy, how to serve a model, how to, um, deal with feedback loops, retraining of models, um, simple things even like how to track your various different experiments. Um, I think all like, there's almost nothing I can think about that is, that is easy. Um, <laughs> yeah. There are some things that I think are easy, easy, but for most, I would say, there's a large amount of service area where there's not really any uh, standardized tooling yet. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So, I mean, that probably brings us to what you do right now at GitHub, right? Which is try to make machine learning really work in production and make it work reliably. So can you talk to us about um, some of the projects that you're working on right now? Um, and yeah. and why, how you think they might be useful to data engineers or developers working on NLP applications? Yeah, so um, making machine learning work in production reliably is a very large surface area. So I don't want to pretend like I'm trying, I'm I have any magic solution to fix all of that. Instead, what I try to do is try to make parts of it easier one step at a time. Um, and so what I mean by that is, as I mentioned before, this kind of discipline of ML ops taking DevOps 
kind of ideas and applying them to machine learning, I try to find opportunities and uh, using tools that GitHub provides to try to bring some of these DevOps uh, ideas into machine learning. So what I mean by that specifically is a lot of, there's a lot of DevOps in uh, Git or GitHub in terms of, especially things like uh, CI, CD tools. So things like Travis or Circle CI, they might be used to um, for a long time. Things that, things like automated testing, running code for you, uh, logging it, even deploying from GitHub. And so uh, GitHub recently in the last uh, couple of years re uh, released GitHub Actions, which is you know, a native way to run CICD on GitHub using uh, a product that GitHub provides. And so um, what I've been doing as a machine learning engineer is finding pain points I personally have and making example workflows and other hosted actions that people can use in their machine learning workflows that, um, that kind of brings DevOps to machine learning. So things that, for example, just to give you some examples. So um, GitHub actions that can help you test your models when you open a PR or test your data when you open a PR or um, some you know integrations with Jupyter such that you know you get, have the right you can get a binder shortcut to Binder Hub uh, in with the right dependencies installed and some other things uh, you know along that line and there's some special aspects about GitHub Actions that makes it easier so GitHub the cool part about GitHub Actions is it makes it to where you can host a pre-packaged uh, workflow for someone else. So if I do something really, if I figure out how to do something really complicated, like um, log to an experiment tracking, or there's a step back. So if I figure out how, a process where you can take a configuration file, train, uh, use that plus code to train a model, log that to some experiment tracking system. And then at the end of that, bring that those results back into a PR. Um, you know, that can be really complicated. Like I have to use three or four tools to do that, but I can package it all together and abstract it with an API and say, okay, these are the inputs I expect. These are the outputs will, that will be emitted from that. And I can host that as a GitHub action. And then people don't have to fiddle around with all of these tools. They can just use that in their workflow. And uh, it can be kind of like an, ab an abstraction. So it allows you to build these abstractions. And so, I've been partnering with some open source projects to build some abstractions like this uh, for machine learning workflows, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So, so there's one, uh, one really simple one is there's something called repo to Docker. So a lot mm -hmm. of uh, data scientists, they're not comfortable with Docker, um, which is understandable. And so there's a really cool project that Binder Hub uses called repo to Docker, which takes a GitHub repository or really any repository and it dockerizes it based on some smart rules about looking for configuration files. Um, and so there's a GitHub action, for example, that will do that for you automatically that will uh, dockerize your GitHub repo and push it to a Docker hub so that you're, you always have an image that's up to date 
uh, uh-huh. even even if you don't understand Docker. Mm-hmm. So um, there's all these things like that, and the hope is with all of these tools, with enough of these tools out there, you can compose them together to then start to make a difference in your machine learning workflow and kind of make it easier for you to do things. Yeah. But it's definitely a large uh, surface area. Um, yeah. So there's, there's definitely a lot of things that, that don't necessarily, that, that really don't have anything to do with GitHub or parts of the machine learning workflow that don't involve necessarily changing something on GitHub. Mm-hmm. And um, I haven't really tackled too much of that so far, but that, that, is, that is something else. There is something else I've been working on. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm generally interested in um, making tools for data scientists in general. So one, one thing I was frustrated with is uh, how hard it was to blog with Jupyter Notebooks. So like, I don't know about you, but when I write a blog that involves code, um, I do, you know, use a Jupyter notebook or something like it to kind of draft my text. And then I have code in the blog. So I want to test that the code works and that it is cohesive with the writing. And so Jupyter notebooks is like the best thing for this. That's what it's designed for. It's designed to be this thing where you have code and text together in one place and then you can just run it. It's very natural, but then converting that to a blog, I found it to be very painful just out in the wild. Um, all these like fiddly conversion scripts and I have to learn about web hosting. I learn something about static site generators. I have to learn HTML, CSS. Yeah. I, have to, I had to learn about GitHub pages, how to deploy that. And then like 10, 10 other things. Um, and, um, and so I made this thing uh, called Fast Pages, which allows you to save a notebook into a repository in GitHub and it just becomes a blog. Um, so we did that in partnership with Fast AI, uh, which is a community that I like to contribute to, oh, that's um, cool. to, to, make, to make that easy. So um, that's some of the stuff like generally, it's not all about GitHub Actions. It's also some stuff that I'm doing with this product, product called CodeSpaces mm-hmm. that is a development environment in your browser. Uh, but I haven't uh, talked about that yet, but basically anything that you can, any dimension on which GitHub can make it easier for data scientists, I like to try to find ways to bring that forward. So it can be GitHub pages with the blogging, it can be actions or code spaces or whatever. Um, you know, I'm interested in all of that. Yeah, um, switch gears to fast pages a little bit. Where's that available if developers wanted to take like look that up and take advantage of that. Yeah, it's a uh, GitHub. It's on GitHub, so it's under FastAI slash FastPages. Okay. Um, cool. If you go to FastAI, it's pinned on one of the the repositories at the top, and you can see see that. Okay, sweet. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out. So I didn't know about that. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, also, going back to GitHub Actions, is there a way to do uh, to like run diagnostics or do diagnostics as part of the CI/CD pipeline. Yeah, so um, there's a you so actions allows you to run uh, arbitrary code triggered by anything that happens on GitHub. So you know, opening a PR, making a comment to a PR, making a comment to an issue, labeling an issue, whatever you can think of, 
you can have a GitHub action that runs in response to that. And so, uh, and they're quite flexible, like you can do anything. And so, um, and you can also do have self-hosted actions where the, the runtime of the action is, is privately hosted by you so that you can run it in your own data center or in your own private network or bare metal. And you can connect it to your data sources. So for example, what that means is um, you can, op you can, so we have workflows that we have demonstrated where you can open a PR and if that PR changes some code that deals with the model of, of any kind, then it can, you can submit a test run that does a full test run of that model on, on your own infrastructure. And it logs it to an experiment tracking system. And then when that uh, run, full run is done, it brings back all the metrics of that run into the PR. And then uh, you can also optionally compare it to a baseline and say, okay, I changed. So the point of that is like, you change something about a model. Not only do you do your typical unit tests to see if the code works, but you also want to make sure this model uh, kind of is acceptable before you merge it into uh, you know, your master branch or your default branch. Um, and so that's one way you can do it. And we have some demonstrations of that uh, in videos of that, if anyone's interested. Um, you can find that at, there's a lot of different ways you can find that. Um, you can just Google generally and you'll what some of the top results will be stuff I'm talking about. Um, but there's a microsite called mlops-github.com. And then try to collect a lot of the information there. Okay. Cool. Do you see a lot of teams using GitHub Actions for exploratory use cases right now, or do you see that happening in, in production with, with teams? For machine learning or just uh, for, generally? Yeah. Machine learning. You know, uh, it's hard to say. Like, I don't have, I don't talk to too many. So, and maybe it's, you know I've been in touch with ten to fifteen different companies that have been using this uh, uh, GitHub Actions and, and these MLOps things internally. Um, so it's hard for me to know exactly who's using the actions because uh, I don't actually have tracking information on the ones that we create. Um, so yeah, unfortunately I don't know too much about that, but I do know that a lot of people are the, at least these people that have reached out to me. There are, there are people that are interested in, in using this um, and they are using it. So uh, in that sense, it's promising. Cool. Um, I know that you've been, because I was reading your blog and I know you recently wrote a blog post about Great Expectations, which, which is another uh, product that I think you're working on if you want to uh, talk about that. Or... Yeah, I think Great Expectations is really exciting because okay. it's the first CI workflow that I've ever seen that mm -hmm. tests your data. There's no such thing before great expectations that is CI for data. That just didn't exist. That wasn't a thing. Like there's no way right now today, CI is only used to test your code on GitHub, but there's no way uh, before great expectations to reliably like test your data. And you might be wondering, as I say this, like, how do you test your data on GitHub? That doesn't even make any sense. Like, you don't store your data in GitHub. That's yeah. true. And so all these 
considerations have been thought of. And so what Get Great Expectations does is it has configuration files that allow you to connect to your remote data sources. And one of the problems with generating unit tests for data is uh, historically it's kind of very time consuming mm -hmm. and very painful because you imagine taking a unit test for data, you have to sit there and create all these rules. Like, okay, this column is has only unique values. And this other column is range should only be between this and that. And this column has a statistical distribution of X and blah, blah, blah. And you have to sit there and brainstorm. And it's like this process of writing all these tests. And you have to think deeply about what, you know, doing that across all of your data can, is like a, maybe several full-time full employees doing that all day long. And um, well, that, you know, that hasn't been realistic. So the approach that Great Expectations takes is they profile your data. Mm -hmm. um, and so they bootstrap you with a bunch of rules. And then you can quickly go in and edit those rules. And that's a great way to get started really fast. Um, and so they generate all these unit tests. And then you can quickly, with in very short order, sort of connect your data to Great Expectations, which is an open source project. And, um, you know, while data is not uh, currently being stored in GitHub, um, people still like write their code for data, their data pipelines. Mm -hmm. So things like Airflow or even SQL queries or whatever it may be, so they, people routine, routinely do store that in GitHub. And so what's really useful to know is like, if you do change your code in a pipeline, your data pipeline, does it break your pipeline? Like, did you mess, like, you know, beyond like breaking something, like, did you actually, did it change the data in a way that is unexpected? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really useful. Now, um, your data pipeline can change or can, your data can definitely break um, as a result of things that has nothing to do with you changing your pipeline. But it's actually, it's still useful to know like if the code you changed broke, broke your data pipeline, which does happen a lot. And so this, this allows you to do that. And you can also use great expectations to do other cool things. So if, if a non-code change does break your data pipeline, you can open an issue automatically on GitHub, like when it does break and say, hey, like this table all of a sudden has like these three uh, situations where expectations are broken. Mm. You know, th like this column all of a sudden has missing values. This other column, you know, has this like out outlier and all that stuff. And so that's, that's really important. I think the reason it's like really exciting is because a lot of people spend most of their time with the data. There's a lot of focus on modeling, getting the modeling right, the serving right, so on and so forth. But um, there's not any tools there, there's not many tools that help people with this like DevOps for data. And I think that is a really interesting, it's very unique and it's cool. And I think it's really helpful. Um, and it could be used even if you're not doing ML, if you're just maintaining a data warehouse, you know, it's very useful for that as well. So, so yeah, I think it's really uh, interesting in that, in that sense. Cool. Um, how do you envision that being used within like conversational AI, for instance? I mean, I've yet to check out great expectations, so I don't quite know how that works in real life. But um, 
like, yeah, how, how do you see that working for conversational AI applications where a lot of the data that you're collecting are user conversations, right? So then you could try to study and review those user conversations in production, use those insights to make your assistant better. Um, how would you use, yeah, like that data within great expectations? Yeah, I mean, so I think something like great expectations is exceed is more useful with more of a tabular type of data set and with a with the unstructured data like text i i think you could you would still want to use great expectations but you would you definitely want to um, be thoughtful about it yeah you can't just necessarily just throw it at great expectations without any just out of the box like you can with yeah. uh, more tabular data and so I think you know uh, calculating some statistics about your data uh, on like a row level right. can be uh, really useful. Like the length of these texts um, and other statistics that you may want to sort of just monitor in a way um, so you can kind of catch things that you know shouldn't that shouldn't happen. But it is it is more challenging. Like for something like great expectations, you know, if all of your data is um, unstructured, then it may not be as useful. But imagine like a conversational AI system is not just text and anyway. Like a really good one has a lot of tabular data that is associated with the text, right. and so in that sense, I think it's still useful. Hmm. So th that's kind of my high level thoughts on that. Like, I mean, I guess if you were um, maybe doing a survey or something with a chatbot asking those questions or giving the user like a lot of rich text buttons and things like that as input, maybe trying to collect that and then do some kind of higher level analysis based on that data, maybe that. Yeah, I mean, I think that a good conversational agent is probably using a lot of tabular data as well. Like, you know, there are, there's likely is a lot of like user information and other metadata that you have, you know, that the your models are using in addition to like what is happening in the conversation. So, mm -hmm. for example, like if the once the user signs up, maybe they give you some information. Maybe there's some other activity that the user is doing. You know, like if it's on a retail site, mm -hmm. you know, you might have some other uh, data, pur purchasing data about that you know, page views, things like that. You know, there's all kinds of other contexts you might uh, need to consider. Uh, I, you know, these conversational ages don't exist in a vacuum as you know. And so um, in that sense, I think it's probably useful for most people. Um, even so, I mean, I, yeah, I don't see too many use cases where it's just text data on its own in isolation, but there certainly is stuff like that. But that's just my experience. It could be wrong. Okay. Yeah, no, that's definitely very interesting. Um, I mean, you know, we like to talk about how, you know, you need like lots of stuff to build great conversational AI, right? You need great research for sure. You also need to implement things like, you know, at Raza, we like to talk about conversation driven development a lot, which is, you know, a set of practices where you listen to users, you, you know, review those conversations, that feedback, and then you use those insights to improve your AI system. 
And, you know, you definitely need things like sound engineering principles, like, right, so like CICD testing and using things like Dockers and the microservices architecture where and if it makes sense. So you basically need tools just like you would for any other software application. Um, and we're all trying to get through, get to the next breakthrough in conversational AI. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what you think the biggest challenge is for for you know, getting something like conversational AI or other machine learning applications too, um, to get to the next level, and how you see open source contributing to solving that you know next challenge. Yeah, so um, you know, I'm actually not a conversational AI expert. I have fiddled around with a lot of NLP. Um, you know, that's my definitely my uh, primary uh, focus area in machine learning. However, when it comes to conversational AI, it's a little bit elusive, like in the sense, I don't, I haven't really seen anything in the wild as a consumer that I've been impressed with, to be quite honest. So it's hard for me to map onto, um, I still remain a little bit skeptical as to if the current methods are going to uh, really do anything that is a step change, but I could be wrong. I just don't, you know, I, I'm not really focused on conversation, the conversational aspect of things. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I do remain skeptical that, um, you know, even something like GPT-3, which right. is really cool, I still remain skeptical, even if you have GPT-3, using GPT-3 as, as an API in your application, like how useful it would be in a product um, as a, it, for a conversation, in a conversational sense. Um, yeah, definitely. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of, there are some small things that I could see conversational AI helping with, but, I think that you, I'm kind of still waiting for that example where I can, I feel that is, it's, uh, it's working. It, you know, the efficacy is high enough to where I feel like it's actually reducing some kind of burden. Right. Um, so as far as open, yeah, I think open source is really great. I think um, it really allows people to have an open discussion and try to collaborate with each other and move the discussion forward and things like gpt3 um you know the reason why i think that could be really interesting is you know there's a large there's a large movement open source for example with gpt3 to make uh to make that more accessible even though the model is obfuscated behind api there's a lot of people working on how to do this, something similar with less compute mm -hmm. um and there's already been there's already some papers out that sort of kind of tackling that idea. And I think open source is a big part of that to sort of uh, allow people to feed off of each other, uh, each other's ideas and, you know, make things that are practical. So I think it's really important. Yeah. I mean, how important is open source, would you say to, to GitHub and, and what you do? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, GitHub, you know, is, really intertwined with open source. I think um, that's where 
the open source lives to a large degree. Um, and I think a lot of people associate GitHub with open source to, for a good reason. Um, and yeah, it's very important to what I do. I think whenever I try to make any ML ops project, I do it in, with, in cooperation with an open source project like Great Expectations or like with Jupyter or FastAI. Um, just because those are the places that, you know, I can get a lot of feedback and um, also want to use, you know, open source projects because I know that people are more likely to use those. Um, and, you know, just want, you know, I'm, I'm kind of using open source the same reason anyone else uses open source. I just, yeah. you know, want to build on, uh, stand on the shoulders of all these giants building all these things instead of building them myself. Right. Right, very cool. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you to ask you, you know, questions about best pages or, or GitHub actions or great expectations, how, uh, how can they do that? Yeah, you can go to my website. It's a hamel.dev. And then that's just a page with some links to some of my work and then it has my contact information there. And you can just get in touch with me through one of those avenues. Okay, cool. Yeah, we'll provide a few links on how to get in touch with you and uh, also like link to some of the projects that you referenced. Uh, but Hamel, thank you so much for chatting with us today and really thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Raza Shoutouts, a segment where we like to acknowledge and thank our amazing community. First off, we have a new Raza hero. Kobus Grayling has written eight incredible articles on Raza and two of them have actually been translated into Spanish in just the past few weeks. Kobus really fits the bill when it comes to consistent, high quality contributions and meeting the requirements to become a Raza hero. Congrats, Kobus, and thanks for all of your support. And now we're gonna recognize some exceptional contributions. Paul Lewis Neck, Musa Atlehan, Tim Vink, Norbert Verzeren, Pranav Durai for their code contributions. Thanks to uh, Yurio Windiat Moko, Ahmed Fatan Hayatullah, Rido Ahmadi for their citation on developing Facebook chatbot based on deep learning using the Raza framework for university inquiries. Myresh Shiloter, co-founder of Gray Adam, he actually shared a video tutorial on how to make a chatbot using the Raza tech stack. Shout out to Gaurav Sharma and A. Anand for their incredible support on our community forum. Shout out to Rakesh Panagrahi for his written tutorial series, A Practical Guide to the Raza Chatbot. Shout out to Simona Cardis for his talk on Introduction into the World of Chatbots and NLP at the Download Innovation Conference 2020, delivered in Italian. We Fung for his incredible guide on what's new in our next major release, Raza 2.0. And last but not least, Thanks to William Arias for his video talk on deploying your chatbot using CI/CD. And that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, come hang out with us on our forum.